Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church and School right here in the heart of Chicago. I pray that you find hope and peace in the message of Christ and Him crucified for you in your life right now. Thank you for listening. And please, if you'd like to support the mission going on right here, uh, please go to our webpage, stjames-lutheran.org to donate. Thank you. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of Christ in the will of God in Jesus Christ for you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grab a seat. Rejoice always, Paul says. What a perfect reading for today. Not by chance, by the way, not a coincidence. As I said, Gaudete Sunday, a long time ago. Uh, bunch of Christians decided that it would be good to break up the Advent of penitential Advent season with a reminder that we're not pretending Jesus has not already come, Christmas has not already come. That's ridiculous. Why live like that? He has come. He has died. He has risen. Let's make one of these Sundays especially a joyful one to remind ourselves Christ is coming. Rejoice always, Paul says. I love this. Think about what we are rejoicing in. Think about what Isaiah says. Chapter 61, he talks about what's going to happen. He didn't know exactly when, but this is going to happen. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That means Christ. Anointed one is literally what Messiah, Messiah means. And the Greek translation, Christ, that's what it means to be the chosen, anointed Dude, the person that's going to save the guy, right? The one. The Lord has anointed me to what? To bring good news to the poor. See if you find yourself in any of these situations, right? Good news to the poor or poor in spirit. Proclaim liberty to the captive. Have you ever felt like a captive, like you were in prison? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. No more doom and gloom, punishment for sins, but God is going to bring favor upon us. Look at this one. To comfort all who mourn. Do you mourn? To grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, an oil of gladness instead of mourning. He goes on to say that they may, uh, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, one day he's going to give them that they, they may be called oaks of righteousness. He's going to build up the ancient ruins. He's going to fortify the city. He's going to actually finish the construction project in Chicago. He says this, repair ruined cities. This one who is coming is going to repair humanity and not just individuals, which we always think like as Americans, unfortunately, but communities getting along, cities where there's no more division. Sound exciting? This anointed one is coming and has come. That's what we celebrate on Christmas, that this word about Isaiah, this word from Isaiah, is happened already. Jesus is that anointed one, Messiah, Christ, whatever you want to call him. He is this guy. And he has done these things. He has brought you back to God. He has liberated you 
from oppressions far worse than your angry boss at work. <laughs> but the oppression of sin that you've made a mess in your life, liberated, the oppression of the law that says you are condemned, he's forgiven you, you're forgiven. The oppression of death and sickness and illness and disability and the fear of that, that even though you have not been hurt yet, you have this underlying cage in which you live that one day you will die. Christ has died for you. Christ is risen. You are free. You don't need to mourn like others mourn because you know it will be okay. No matter what, there is always a light in Christ and there is always hope, no matter what. Liberated, comforted, the light has dawned on Christmas Day so long ago and it still is shining more and in more places today. Do you believe this? And these are not just pretty words. Jesus doesn't just say, blessed are the mourning, blessed are those who are hurting, blessed are the poor. He did it. Your faith is not just in niceties, but they are in the action of God in history for you. Christ is risen for you. So Paul says to you, rejoice, not just when it's going well, always. Because we can. Now, Paul's not saying this, you know, these aren't just words. He's not saying this from a place of comfort, like everything's going well for Paul. Easy for you to say, right? No, Paul was just rejected by these same people here, the Thessalonians he's writing to. They are suffering persecution. He got thrown out of the city, he's been beaten, he's got bruises all over him. He is saying this from a place of suffering, and yet he says, rejoice always. Why? Because you can't ultimately take away what God has given you. And this is not a nicety. This is a command to you, rejoice always. How's that going for you? Does this seem too crazy, rejoicing always? Too difficult? What, what gets in the way of you rejoicing always? Now, I'd like to say, you know, obviously circumstances. It is not easy to always just rejoice. Oh, good, something bad happened to me. Thank you, God. That's awesome. That's not easy. Circumstances absolutely rob us of that joy, though it doesn't take it, because there is always hope. You will eventually get out of that circumstance in Christ. The sad thing, I think, when we hear this rejoice always, is that we're the ones that get in the way of this joy. That we're our own worst enemies. It's self-inflicted wounds. It's not even circumstances around us, a loss of a job and all these things. We do this ourselves, stopping our ability to rejoice always, the power that God has given us to rejoice always. And here's a couple ways that we, that we do it. And I'm not, these, these are kind of a, you read around, these, these are all the same things. If you look at these things that steal joy, right? Joy stealers. A very good friend of mine, Brian Selman, and one I was an associate pastor, just like Pastor Keating, and he was preaching, and he called, he called them joy suckers, by the way. Uh, and he goes to all people, by the way, too. But anyhow, joy stealers. 
And this is some ways that we can inflict or rob ourselves of joy. One is comparison. Comparing yourself to others steals joy, steals rejoicing that you could be having what God has blessed you with and what you have. But instead, we're always looking over our shoulders and looking at other people and what do they have and comparing. And now what we have is not so shiny. Christmas is a great example of that, isn't it? You've made all your preparations. But you look around at other people, their Christmas is far better. They got more decorations. I mean, Chevy Chase is a joke, it's hilarious, but we're just like that. Who's got the most decorations, the most presents? Who's doing the most? Who's going to the coolest place for vacation? And it's worse than ever, I think, because with social media and the internet, we just know way too much about other people's lives. And we're trying to rejoice and have joy in what we have, but we're looking around and seeing what everybody else has. And it sucks away the rejoicing. And the next thing you know, we're not happy with that. Can you relate to that, by the way? Is, it just, is that just me? <laughs> just like uh, kids, you know, getting your presents. Uh, in fact, we were talking about the last service. Somebody came by and said, yeah, my kids, you, you give out the, uh, the presents there. And uh, they're counting. You got to count. Meryl, did you count your presents? Make sure you had just as much as your sister. We do that, right? Well, guess what? Kids, your mom and dad aren't any better. We're always counting and looking around. Who's got more? Who's got less? Judging ourselves. Comparison kills joy and rejoicing. Another one, distraction is huge. This world honors and praises multitaskers, keeping busy, never sit too long on anything. How much can you do in one day? And we have distractions that rob us all the time of any moment just to think deeply about anything. We are the shallowest people in the history of humanity. And that is the 99% reason why people fall away from the faith and aren't packed in churches. They are here at St. James. I believe that's the number one obstacle. It's nothing else except for the luxury of rich societies to have a million distractions. How can you have a church packed in poor countries? Because they don't have a zillion stupid distractions and they also recognize need. They're not living in the lie and illusion that we have somehow conquered anything at all with our policy technology, or whatever. Distract, distract, the dumbest things. You know what I'm talking about. And I'm like this. I try to do my sermon. I open up the laptop, and I'm going to start working on it. But i got to check every score possibly. Michigan State won, by the way, yesterday. But I need to know what's going on. And you go down the rabbit holes of everything, and you never pause and really think about anything. And to my, quite frankly, it robs us of a rich life is distraction and multitasking and not just sitting quite frankly a good thing happens and dwelling on it we're off to something else and most especially just meditating just for one hour on what God has done for us in Christ distraction robs peace and joy too doesn't it another one overwhelming the devil loves this one. He loves all these. These are all good. And read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. He does a great job of describing all these different ways that Satan gets involved in robbing us of joy. 
in our day-to-day life. Overwhelming is a good one, right? There's a problem, there's another problem, and Satan likes to cloud it and make it feel like we are surrounded by problems, and they're so huge, and they're so large, there's no way we can pay for all these things that St. James to expand. It's too big of a number. There's one example, by the way. But problems, too. That's not a problem, by the way. That's an that's a opportunity, a joyful, let's do it. But real issues can be far worse because we think it's impossible, right? Gigantic monsters. We let that overwhelm us, suffocate us, and not just look at each one, let alone go to the Lord on these. You know, it's really funny uh, how the more overwhelmed you are, this is my experience, the less you pray. The more you feel like you're in darkness and you're just surrounded by bad things, for some reason, it's like I don't want to hear God's word. Sin is so creepy. And not only, we not only do bad things that create a bad environment, but then we create this feeling that we like it. We actually like to be miserable. We let everything overwhelm instead of give it to the Lord, or quite frankly, just look at it logically of one thing at a time, right? You know this. All your problems are like that. One piece at a time. It's amazing what you can do one thing. Overwhelming can rob us of rejoicing in the little things we have. Especially if we're like expecting everything to be perfect all at once, right? And we miss the little things. The little blessings that God gives us. No, every little problem in your life has been solved, but God gives us little things, a little food, a friend, a family member, etc. Another great one is not being thankful. And I love, I'm thankful for the school's word of the year, gratitude. I think that is fundamental to a healthy life. And it changes your whole perspective. When you're not thankful, when you're not making yourself say thank you, you're not realizing how awesome your life is. That God even gave you that food today. That you even get to eat today. That you even had that friend or that family or that Christmas time. Gratitude not only properly recognizes that all you have has been given by God, and that gives you a little joy that someone else has your, your life in their hands, but also it humbles you. Gratitude, when you're not thankful, you know, the, the sign of a civilized society is what they do before food. That's my theory. I'm pretty, I feel really good about this one. What you do before a meal determines how healthy, intelligent of a society this is, let alone one that actually intelligently thinks that there is a God and that God loves them. If you just see food and you go grab it and start eating it because it's nutrient, you're an animal. That's what animals do. Not civilized, not human. When you can stop and see something, whatever it's set before you, a snack, a dinner, and you say, thanks, and you pause and think about how awesome this is, that's not only the sign of a civilized human being who has self-control and self-constraint, but one who recognizes how God gives you joy in this little thing, a dinner. And you don't take it for granted. And finally, a huge reason why we are robbed of joy is when we stay away from the source of joy. 
When we stay away from the source of joy, what does that mean? Jesus is the source of joy. He is the one who died and rose for you. It's his promises that give us joy even during suffering. It's his promises that give us hope even though we feel a little hopeless. We can look to that death of his. We can look to that resurrection and we can have comfort that you know what? Christ rose again and he said, I'm going to rise again too. The source of joy for our life is right here, the gathering of the saints the hearing of his joyful good news, the receiving of his body and blood, that meal together, baptism, but also the gathering. When you leave that, when you separate yourself from the joyful energy that is Jesus and his word and his sacraments, you will become less joyful. You will rejoice less. You will forget these promises and that hope that can't be taken away from you and you will get overwhelmed and succumb to the dark world. And you know what? When Paul says rejoice always, he's not talking to individuals. He's talking to a whole people. It's a command too. It's not about being happy all the time. You're not happy all the time. You do this whether you're happy or not. You rejoice. You give thanks. And I promise you, when you do that, whether you feel it or not, stop following your feelings, which is great, that's what I like about our SEL. You do it, and guess what? Doing it, I'll bet you anything, nine times out of ten, will create a feeling. Try it. Every day, giving thanks, rejoicing. Thank you, Lord, for whatever it is. I really believe... It will create, not permanently, and I want you to depend on this because sometimes we have bad days and that's okay. But I believe doing this benefits us because it turns our head toward what God has done. And you know what? Do it for somebody else. Rejoice always. It's not about you and your little perfect health world and how you can self-help and how you need to be at peace. Rejoice always is a command, not just for you, but it is for others to hear you rejoice. You know what? You need to rejoice always for other people. To hear you tell them what a great day this is, what Christ has done. We need to hold each other up because we don't always have good days. And the Lord has put you in people's lives. That's what the church is, to hold each other up and rejoice for them. (laughs) Sometimes we've got to rejoice for people in their stead. That's what it means to be part of the church. Because ultimately, Paul ends his letter, or ends this beautiful section, by saying what? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a very important phrase if you don't feel like the best disciple and you're not always rejoicing. Paul says this. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Do your best. Rejoice. Take up this attitude because it's good for you. God doesn't help God at all. But in the end, my friends, Christ has it. God's more faithful than you are. It's going to be okay. May you share that with others. In Jesus' name, amen.